This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good morning, afternoon or evening. Wherever you are, welcome to today's event, Refugee Status Determination, Law and Practice. My name is Arif Hussain, and I'm a senior solicitor at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney, Australia. At RACS, we provide free independent legal advice to people seeking asylum in Australia. And in the recent times, I've also been working on the Action for Afghanistan campaign, which aims to advocate for greater humanitarian intake from the Australian government in response to the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and aims to advocate for permanent protection visas for Afghan nationals living in Australia on temporary protection visas. I'm joining you from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm so pleased to be a part of this conversation, marking the launch of the fourth edition of the Refugee and International Law. I believe around the Cadlow Center is just referred to the book. Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill published the first edition in 1983. That book in many people's views established the modern field of international refugee law. By the third edition, Guy was joined by his co-author and now colleague at the Cadlow Center, Professor Jane McAdam. For this edition, Emma Dunlop, a PhD candidate at the Cadlow Center, joined as a contributing author. So version four is a clean sweep for the Cadillac Center. It's certainly one of the international refugee law's classic texts. The refugee in international law has been essential resource for scholars, legal practitioners, decision makers, and civil society. It has informed the jurisprudence of tribunal and superior courts around the world. As a practitioner myself, I can attest to the fact that RACS has a number of copies around the office, so we're never too far from one. RACS, at RACS, we also see um, the book being referred to in many decisions by the tribunal members. As the field has grown and grown more complex, so has the book. The, the fourth edition is a daunting 864 pages. Today, I'm pleased to discuss some of the key issues of particular relevance to me as a legal practitioner working in the field of refugee law with two of the authors. Guy Goodwin-Gill is a professor of law at the Cadillac Center and is an emeritus fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. His distinguished career has encompassed not only a pioneering contribution to the academy, but also to practice through his advocacy in the courts contribution to parliamentary and international committees, and his engagement with civil society and UNHCR. Emma Dunlop is a PhD candidate at the Cadillac Center and plans to commence practice at the New South Wales Bar in 2022. She's a university medalist from the University of Sydney and holds a Master's of Law from New York University and a Master's of Studies from the University of Oxford. So Emma, don't be surprised when I approach you next year for some pro bono work. 
I will have about 40 minutes um, of discussion with the authors, followed by time for audience questions. You're welcome to submit your questions at any time during the Q&A function. Um, to open up, the first question is uh, for both of you. Um, and Guy, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, could you please provide us with a short reflection on what importance a book like this can have at this moment in time? Thank you, Arif. Well, when I wrote The Refugee International Law in 1983, I had in mind to produce a short, manageable handbook that would be useful to those like myself who were deciding refugee status or intervening to prevent the reform of refugees. Today, nearly 40 years later, a lot has changed and not just the size of the book. Refugee status determination has become legalized and judicialized everywhere. The 1951 Convention, particularly the refugee definition, is the most highly litigated treaty in the world. What's changed also are the numbers of those in search of refuge, to over 20 million these days. But the search for asylum and protection is now as hard as it ever was. In fact, it's become harder since the end of the Cold War. And yet today, more people understand that refugees need and deserve protection that governments must be held to account and to abide by the rule of law. The need for the refugee in international law is as great as ever, it seems to me, to remind us all that the refugee is entitled to protection, to show what that requires and how it's to be achieved. Yeah, thank you. And Emma, your reflections? Uh, yes, I, I think Guy's put it very well, and I can only say that my third edition of the Refugee and International Law is extremely well thumbed through my years as a, a student, um, and it's just been a great privilege to join Guy and Jane in working on the fourth edition, uh, which I'm sure will be a tremendous boon to those in practice. Great, thank you. Um, Guy, the area between non-refoulement and asylum appears to be growing in practice. Can you talk about this uh, trend and the situation for those caught in the gap? Yes, uh, there is indeed a gap. The tendency among many states, particularly those in the West, is to exclude or to push claimants back, even though there is no international agreement on the responsibility to determine claims to refugee status or protection. The unilateral nature of these measures is especially worrying, given the speed at which they take place and reduce possibilities of legal challenge. There's also clear evidence that states are more and more concerned with characterizing arrivals as illegal, notwithstanding that irregular entry and non-penalization have been recognized and excused in the 1951 convention. The evidence of refoulement, often accompanied by abuse and ill treatment, is increasingly frequent and very worrying. Deaths have now been recorded in the Europe's frontiers, but such measures are illegal and the challenge is to find timely ways to correct such behavior. National security in the COVID-19 pandemic have allowed certain states to introduce or confirm restrictive measures in the name of precaution, while simultaneously denying that they engage in pushbacks or pretending that all is done in accordance with the law. And so we find certain states in Europe legalizing an unlawful situation, calling for money for fences, for the adaptation of the EU legal framework to new realities for border integrity. At the same time, they condone or support groups of thugs who react viciously to those seeking to enter in search of refuge. The possibilities for alternative measures 
alternative approaches to protection seem ready to get an airing. More can be done, but this means more cooperation between states in an environment in which control and prevention are not the buzzwords, but where protection and humane solutions are key. Um, and Emma, um, as mentioned before, you're heading to the bar next year. Uh, what roles are courts playing in ensuring compliance with obligation of non-reformers? Well, thank you, Arif. It's a really interesting question. And it's also difficult to generalise uh, because, of course, the role that courts can and do play is conditioned by the legal system in which they're operating and the laws that they are charged with applying. So, so Guy has talked already about the international obligations of non-reformal, of non-penalisation for illegal entry, uh, but of course we know that states do not necessarily implement all of their obligations under the 1951 Refugee Convention into domestic law. And the extent to which courts can draw on international law when interpreting domestic law also depends on the legal system and the specific wording of migration laws. Uh, so there can be big differences here between countries. Um, in the Netherlands, for example, the constitution actually provides that self-executing provisions of treaties are binding on all people as soon as they're ratified, uh, which means that courts can apply certain international obligations directly. Um, whereas in contrast, uh, in Australia, we had in 1914, uh, in 2014, I'm sorry, the amendment of the Migration Act to remove most references to the Refugee Convention. And that was with the express intention of setting up a new independent and self-contained statutory framework, which articulates Australia's interpretation of its protection obligations under the Refugee Convention. And this uh, has a limiting effect on the extent to which Australian law can develop consistently with comparative jurisprudence, uh, and with international obligations to the extent to which they're not incorporated in domestic law. Uh, yeah. So Guy has, has already talked a little about the practice of reformal. Uh, we've seen asylum seekers maybe denied access to a state's territory entirely through maritime interceptions and turnbacks. Uh, we've seen asylum seekers who, who make it to the border, but then struggle to access the refugee status determination process uh, through, for example, border officials systematically failing to detect or register their claims. And we've seen tinkering in the RSD process itself that winnows down the number of successful claims through procedural bars or um, fast tracking mechanisms that are used in a very rigid way, for example. Uh, and finally, there are examples of quite extreme laws that attempt to cut asylum seekers off from the lawyers and assistance that they need to make a claim. Um, and an example of this from 2018 was Hungary's amendment of its criminal code uh, to create a crime of facilitating illegal immigration, which extended to anyone who conducts organisational activities in order to allow the initiating of an asylum procedure in Hungary by a person who is not a refugee. Uh, and this is punishable in some circumstances by a year in prison. And you can understand the fear that this would have a chilling effect on lawyers, on NGOs, who could potentially face criminal sanctions for assisting an asylum seeker whose claim is ultimately rejected, as many uh, asylum claim seekers' claims are in Hungary. 
Um, but one of the reasons why we know about all of these issues is because they've been litigated and often successfully litigated in domestic courts and in regional human rights courts. Uh, so in Hersey, very um, familiar case, the European Court of Human Rights, its Grand Chamber, unanimously found that Italy had violated the rights of a group of asylum seekers who it intercepted in international waters and returned to Libya without giving them access to an asylum procedure. Uh, the new law in Hungary, which I mentioned, um, is currently being considered by the Court of Justice of the European Union in a case brought by the European Commission. And we've already seen an opinion by the Advocate General considering it to be in violation of EU law. Uh, and even before it got to that point domestically, the Hungarian Constitutional Court had tried to carve out humanitarian aid from the scope of the law. Um, so, so I'll just end this quite long answer uh, to your question with, with one final example of the difference that courts can make, um, particularly if they're able to draw on international law in their interpretation of domestic law. And it's, it's a Canadian case, uh, B010 and Canada, that the Supreme Court decided a few years ago now in 2015. And the facts in that case are quite extraordinary. Um, the applicants were among around 500 Tamils who boarded a Thai cargo ship on the promise that they would be taken to Canada. Uh, they paid 20 to $30,000 each to the crew. But shortly after departure, the Thai crew abandoned the ship, leaving the asylum seekers alone. And 12 of them, then stepped up and took on different duties to keep the ship on course. Uh, and so the man known as B010 worked two to three hour shifts in the engine room each day. Two others took on navigation and lookout duties. Another volunteered as a cook. The journey took three months, but against the odds, they made it to Canada. And upon making it to Canada, um, B010 and his fellow volunteers were told that because they had assisted the others to reach Canada, they were barred from ever making an asylum claim because under Canadian law, a person is desired access to RSD when he or she has engaged in people smuggling amongst other activities. And this ended up in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court looked at it and said, we have to interpret Canada's law, not only in light of our international obligations to combat people smuggling, but also in light of our commitment to asylum seekers and refugees. So the court looked at the prohibition on penalising an asylum seeker for illegal entry, Article 31 of the Refugee Convention, and it said you cannot deny an asylum seeker access to RSD, to protection, solely because they've helped others to escape the country illegally without pay in a collective flight to safety. And I think that this case is a clear example of how reference to international law can assist in the interpretation of domestic laws that bear harshly on asylum seekers and refugees and the critical role that the courts can play in that process. Yeah, thank you, Emma, for providing that clear examples uh, for us. Um, Guy, um, large-scale displacements are significant contemporary concerns, like we look at the conflict in Afghanistan and uh, emerging issues in Ethiopia. Can you walk us through what uh, you see as a major development in the area of law impacted since the last edition? Yes, thank you, Arif. Large-scale displacements have always, always been a matter of concern. For the one and a half million Russian refugees in the 1920s to the movement of the Rohingya and other groups in the present day, you mentioned Ethiopia in particular. 
Why are they of concern? Because they challenge the assumptions of the state system, which prefers to think in individual terms, because they upset the gatekeeper function that states insist on whenever someone arrives in search of refuge. And because it just seems wrong that so many should have been dispossessed of their land. Since 2007, what's changed? Frankly, not much. There are still too many refugees in protracted refugee situations. Still too many who denied all opportunity to gain a livelihood or an education will be, will be definitely inspired to move on to what they hope will be a better life. In the 1920s, the voluntary agencies thought that the only solution for the vast numbers of Russian refugees lay in repatriation. But it was accepted that return could only take place under appropriate guarantees of security, which, as we know, never emerged. Now, we have in place the Global Compact on Refugees, which offers us the basis for moving ahead. But it depends upon cooperation between states in providing solutions, employment, and alternative pathways to protection. To some extent, it's been put on hold as a result of COVID-19 but it will need to be kick-started once we come to grips with COVID-19. And that, I think, it does hold some hope for the future, that we can get cooperation between states to deal with all aspects of large movements of displacement. Thank you. Um, Emma, many states like Australia um, offer temporary protection in response to large-scale displacement. So in Australia, with the temporary protection visas, you have people living here for eight to 10 years. Um, they have lives here, but still not able to restart their lives and go on with their lives. What limits do you see on this and how much um, do you think the law can play a role um, in maintaining those limits? Uh, thank you, Arif, for the question. And I think that it's important to distinguish at the outset between the idea of temporary protection as a political solution that, that Guy and Jane refer to as an exceptional emergency time-bound response to granting protection to a mass influx of asylum seekers. And Australia's use, as you've mentioned, of temporary protection visas as a punitive means of deterrence. And I think that these are two very separate things that shouldn't be conflated. Um, so when states are faced with a large-scale displacement uh, and they adopt temporary protection as a key limit, of course, of non-reformal. Um, there's a need to assist refugees and asylum seekers to meet their urgent protection needs. Um, but this kind of protection doesn't require a result in recognition of refugee status. It's more about that first stage of protection. Um, and, and even in these um, mass influx situations, there are still other limits that need to be borne in mind, um, particularly if children are involved, the protections under the Convention on the Rights of the Child, it's a critical obligation to take account of the child's best interests uh, as a primary consideration in all actions involving children, as well as other principles under international human rights law. Um, and of course, there's also a need for a sufficient and supportive international response uh, to support those states that are providing this kind of protection because while it's often Europe and Australia in the news, it shouldn't be forgotten that it's the low and middle income countries that really shoulder the vast majority of the world's responsibilities towards asylum seekers and refugees. Um, but Australia is in a, is a different category. And we've seen in Australia the, the pernicious effects 
of temporary protection on the so-called legacy caseload of refugees. Um, you would have um, far more insight into that, Arif, than I would in your work. Um, but for the audience overseas, the legacy caseload are, are 30,000 people who arrived in Australia between the 13th of August 2012 and the 1st of January 2014, uh, who were not sent offshore for processing and who were barred for a number of years from even making a claim and then processed through a fast track system with more limited rights and if found to be a refugee, only entitled to temporary protection, either a three-year temporary protection visa or a five-year, what's called a SHIV visa. Um, and, and this is a, a very different scenario. And to understand what it means to be caught in this system, um, I just mentioned the, um, the eight-part podcast series, Temporary, that UNSW has put together with Guardian Australia that I know members of RACS have been involved in that gives um, a, a really um, difficult reminder uh, from people in their own words of what it's like to be caught within the system. Thanks, Lee. Um, Guy, both in Australia and in Europe, turnbacks um, and other interceptions have become a standard, if contentious, practice. And it began in the US. Is the law proving a match for these practices when it comes to safeguarding the principle of non-refoulement? Thank you, Arif. The challenge for lawyers and for international refugee law lies in the secrecy of many interception operations at sea. Where the details are known, and inevitably they will be known, often too late, of course, where the details are known, the responsibility of the state over those whom they would exercise authority and control is clear and has been confirmed in many jurisdictions. In the Hersey case, for example, the facts emerge regarding interception and return to Libya and the European Court of Human Rights ruled against the practice. Today, that practice has re-emerged and Libya is no more safe than before. A particular concern at the level of law and policy is the amount of money being spent on the Libyan Coast Guard with so little accountability to EU values. So there's a whole realm of lines of, of, of attack, if you like, involved in this situation. The accountability of funds dispersed, as well as the protection of the rights of those affected. The law is indeed struggling to keep up, and much depends upon the fact finders. There is delay, of course, in bringing court proceedings and it getting results. There is some provision, there is some prospect of, 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 of hope through interim measures of protection. But above all, what we need to generate is a culture of protection coming from below, from the people who demand accountability of their government. If that is expected by the people, then it will come about eventually at the, at the front end. But at the moment, the law is indeed struggling to keep up. Emma, one of the five grounds of, uh, on which an asylum seeker can claim a well-founded fear of persecution under the Refugee Convention is a particular social group. Uh, this category sits alongside others like race, religion, but um, is much more contested. Can you tell us about some of the major developments in this area? Yes, thanks, Arif. And there's been some really interesting developments here uh, since the third edition of uh, the Refugee and International Law. And particular social group um, has always been a fascinating category because little guidance was given as to what it covered um, when the convention was, was drafted. It uh, came from the Swedish delegate quite late in the day without significant discussion as to what it entailed. 
Um, but it has been recognised that this category is capable of evolution uh, as times and social values change. And while it's not an all-encompassing safety net, over the years it's come to include groups, including women at risk of persecution, uh, and those claiming to be refugees by reason of their sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, their lived experience of disability or particular medical conditions. And in the, the last decade or so, uh, we've seen some contestation in some of these categories. So under the, the Trump administration, for example, we saw attempts by the Attorney General to narrow the scope of protection um, by challenging its application to claims arising out of domestic violence and gang violence. Uh, and that was in a decision, the matter of AB in 2018. Um, but there's now under the Biden administration been steps towards restoring this balance. So it's very much a live issue, which is still in play. Uh, and sexual orientation claims have also uh, had some really significant developments since, since the third edition was published. And I don't think that was actually a category uh, in the particular social group section of the book on uh, sexual orientation claims at the time that the third edition was published. Uh, a lot has changed in the treatment of claims and, and courts are grappling now with how to identify those with a well-founded fear of persecution. So we've seen big cases uh, in the UK Supreme Court like HJ Iran, uh, in the Court of Justice of the European Union, in the case of X, Y, and Z, uh, that show a recognition that sexual orientation is a fundamental characteristic of identity that deserves protection. And we've seen courts also accept that we cannot expect a person to hide their sexuality in order to escape persecution. Um, but then there's the question of a person who would live discreetly uh, because of their personal preferences or social pressures. And what H.J. Aran tells us, how it's been applied in, in later cases, is that such a person would not be considered to be a refugee. Um, but I think that there are real questions here about how one can accurately assess a choice uh, which is made under the shadow of persecution. And, and these are the issues that perhaps there'll be more attention to in the years ahead. Um, another point which is worth mentioning is that it appears that greater recognition of sexual orientation claims under the particular social group ground has been accompanied by a heightened scrutiny on an applicant's credibility. Uh, and this is something that Jenny Milbank has identified in her work. And I think that's increased attention on credibility in claims raises its own challenges for claimants. Um, one other point that I'd mention is the role of the criminalization of homosexuality as an indicator of persecution or its likelihood. At this point, courts seem to be taking the view that criminalization on the books uh, will not be sufficient in and of itself to amount to persecution. Uh, but this may be an issue which is, is litigated in future. Uh, but at the end of the day, the convention was drafted sufficiently openly to enable this ground to evolve and to respond to society's growing understanding of persecution and persecuted groups. And I think the touchstone remains the convention's object and purpose of assuring to refugees the widest possible exercise of their fundamental rights and freedoms as set out in the preamble. And the development under the particular social group ground is a really interesting uh, example of this in practice. 
If I can add something at that point, in Trill 2, in the second edition and the third edition, we advanced the idea of a social view of social group. How are groups perceived in and by society at large? And we maintain that position still, but emphasize that this is not, not a legal criterion, but essentially a matter of fact. By that, I mean it's something to be gathered by looking at the conditions in society overall using good country of origin information and the reports of credible fact-finding organizations such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. On that basis, we can take the fact of, of society's perception of particular groups and feed that into the equation, the refugee definition, and protect against persecution. And um, this is just um, a question based on the practices that we see, you know, Emma, so you touched on um, issues around credibility and usually the standards used in practice um, to assess credibility and some of this claim on gender orientation um, is from a Western perspective. And also um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take into account the lived experience of that person from the country where they came from. Um, is there, you know, and you talked about this area being developing, uh, is there a prospect or would, would this area be better addressed if it is a standalone ground by itself? Do you both have an opinion about that? Uh, well, I think it would be difficult at this point to um, create a standalone ground simply because any prospect of reopening the convention would create the difficulty that other protections could be tinkered with. Uh, and so this perhaps may be uh, the best protection that we can grant simply by keeping the convention as a coherent uh, document to which is, is not capable of, of amendment. Uh, I'm not sure what, what you think, Guy. No, I agree with that. I think, I think we, we, it's long been thought that to open up the convention now would be to ask for a trouble. I think we have to accept what we have and to use it as best we can. And it has proven to be flexible. Uh, and we can see that as social mores develop, as values change, uh, we can see increasing realm of protection coming on board in the application of the refugee definition. I think we should welcome that. Yes, there will be upsets from time to time. Yes, there will always be a state of tension between those who claim for protection and the government who resist protection. But I think that is healthy. That's a tension that can be, can be used to advantage. Great, thank you. Um, Guy, uh, refugee claims based on political opinion seems to have become harder to establish. Would you agree? And how uh, would you explain this, even in liberal democracies that once welcomed dissidents from abroad? Yes, indeed. Uh, refugee claims based on political opinion have become harder to establish, both because of the impact of national security and because of a continuing failure to recognize how even the religious or the moral position necessarily has a political dimension or how political opinions can be imputed with often fatal consequences to the observer or the innocent bystander. And sadly, even in democratic states, there is an increasing tendency to suppress the dissident or objector through defamation laws, through anti-whistleblowing sanctions, through les majestés, and through application of national security provisions. During the Cold War, things were different. Now the political, it seems at time to be inherently suspect. What is political opinion today? We have said, and I quote, any opinion on any matter in which the machinery of state, government and policy may be engaged. And there are no inherent limits. 
At one time, political opinion might have been understood almost as a simple binary opposition to the state's choice of social, economic, and cultural organization. Today, though, the range of relevant matters may be almost unlimited, ironically, in part because of increased cooperation between states. We've seen that with regard to terrorism. The question is, how do states react? If the reaction is disproportionate, unreasonable, unnecessary in a democratic society, then we may be looking at persecution. But we're going to need the courts to make those judgments for us. The facts, again, are what counts. Hence, recent attacks on human rights defenders on those at the front end of refugee arrivals. Their efforts at fact-finding and reporting to counter the misinformation, the Trumpian lies, are also at risk. That's why we need to react in favor of human rights defenders as well, defending their ability to, to, to see what goes on, to report what goes on, and to advise. Thank you. And um, just because I have you here, Guy, one uh, question for you. Can you talk about the distinction between uh, discrimination um, uh, and as it is popularly understood and persecution? and how they play out in RSDs today? Well, discrimination is more often than not an inherent aspect of persecution. In refugee status determination, one needs to be sensitive to the interplay of human rights. For example, the right to protest against corruption, the right to protest land rights, the right to protest deaths in custody, and the politics of response to understand where law and order give way to repression and persecution. And refining the concept of discrimination will lead us to a better understanding of when law and order becomes persecution. It's a situation of flux and needs to be approached with care and sensitivity. But nonetheless, discrimination is key to the foundation of protect refugee protection, which is persecution. And guys, somebody who has worked in many aspects of um, the international and national refugee regimes, and Emma, as someone who has decided to move from scholarship to practice, can you both talk about uh, what you see as the role of legal practitioners uh, when it comes to, as it were, the refugee in international law? Emma, do you want to take that first? Uh, yes. Well, I would just say at the outset that I have tremendous respect for the work that you do, Arif, and the work that others do. Uh, in supporting asylum seekers and refugees. Uh, it's difficult work. It's very demanding work. Uh, and it's particularly difficult, I think, in a context such as that we face in Australia, where access to legal aid has been cut for many of those seeking asylum. So uh, at the outset, I would just like to say that this is um, tremendously important work that I think is, is really advancing uh, the rights of, of refugees globally. Uh, Guy? Yeah, the importance of the role of the legal practitioner cannot be overemphasized, but I'm conscious when I say that, that I might be excluding others from the role of legal practitioner. And at times that can appear to be the case because refugee law can seem to be incredibly complex. And it is complex at certain levels and certain stages of appeal processes. But by legal practitioner, we include the advocate who pleads a case in court, of course, or who advises a client on their claim or one who argues against refoulement in whatever environment, or who, working for UNHCR or some other international organization, argues for protection, for durable solutions, 
or who questions what is done in their name, or who active in or with an NGO or civil society canvasses against detention and for asylum. And clearly that role will vary. It depends on time, it depends on context. At times acting as a lawyer will come at some personal cost, but when both protection and durable solutions have apparently fallen off the agenda of many states, it is the utmost importance to stress again and again the inherent value of the rule of law, which like accountability is under threat. The international legal regime of refugee protection is now and has always been in flux, and it may yet suffer reversals. But it will develop in a positive way and bring protection solutions to those in fear of persecution and other relevant harm only from work at the ground up. And the efforts of the legal practitioner who, in close touch with the refugee, is able to identify their needs and to formulate a solution consistently with international law. Thank you both. Um, so we're moving on to uh, audience questions. Um, if you have any questions, you can use the um, Q&A tab to uh, ask your questions to Guy and Emma. Um, so the first question that I'll uh, put to you both um, is from Kate. Uh, Kate says, I'm struck by Professor Goodwin Gill's comments that the Refugee Convention is the most highly litigated treaty in the world. Uh, one, of, one of the ways in which the United States tries to minimize its ob obligations is to interpret the refugee definition so narrowly that few can qualify for, for example, in determining particular social groups. This contributes to the uh, backlog of cases as uh, adjudicators must apply to uh, apply a convoluted legal standard and leads to additional litigation as people appeal their cases. This is similar in Australia, where we, we have um, a narrow definition of uh, what a refugee is and a very limited uh, review rights through the IIA. Um, Kate continues, as the, uh, the, are there examples of states that employ a more straightforward interpretation? Or do you see any prospects of states simplifying their jurisprudence, if only because it would allow them to adjudicate cases more quickly? That's a very good question. And I think we have been working very much in the refugee international law with the refugee definition of the 1951 convention, because that's what states aspire to do. They see the refugee definition as essential to their gatekeeper function. And that, I think, explains the attention that they give to each fine detail of the refugee definition. Could they adopt a better approach? I think they could. There are alternative ways of providing protection which do not require this case-by-case -case analysis of the situation of individuals. An approach based on Cartagena, for example, or the African Union approach, could produce results more quickly, more effectively, than this case-by-case, uh, appeal-upon-appeal uh, approach, which is adopted in many cases. But unfortunately, this is the way that, case, that's, that states tend to see their, their interests being best protected. They like to see themselves as the gatekeeper. They like to see themselves as insisting to the public at large that don't worry, we look at the case of everyone who seeks refuge in this country, and we only admit those who are refugees. I think a change in attitude is required. It would be welcome if it could happen. Right. Um, the next question, uh, again, for you, Guy, 
Can you speak about um, how the notion of persecution has transformed since the Refugee Convention was drafted? And Emma, feel free to jump in. Persecution, again, is one of these terms which is not defined in the Refugee Convention, but is left to develop in the practice of states. And that's, I think, has been quite healthy. We do understand persecution in a sense different from that of those who drafted the 1951 Convention, quite definitely, because we have developed human rights. We've developed our understanding of human rights, of what it, of what it is to be protected in one's human rights and what it is to be persecuted in one's human rights. So the concept of persecution is, has evolved quite distinctly. It is still undefined in many respects. It is still generally recognized as constituting a serious violation of human rights, not every violation of human rights, but as something about which is a reflection of degree. I think that's important to maintain and to bear in mind, discrimination and the degree of severity of harm, which are words which are inadequate to describe persecution in any finite terms. And it's very hard to define it apart from the facts of particular cases. Um, just if I can make a comment, Arif, that goes both to, to Guy's comments just then and also back to Kate's question. I think one thing to bear in mind is that because the 1951 Refugee Convention is so highly litigated, um, there is really a role for courts to look at each other's jurisprudence, to try to create some kind of coherent approach to the interpretation of terms such as persecution, being persecuted, uh, of the scope of categories like particular social group and being able to draw on decisions which have been made in other jurisdictions, being able to create what's being referred to um, as a kind of transnational dialogue in, um, in drawing a common approach is extremely healthy and helpful uh, for the development of the jurisprudence on the convention as a whole. Thank you both. Um, the next question comes through for both of you. Uh, what, are new what are new developments regarding the interplay of international norm and declarations uh, containing broader refugee definitions um, than the 1951 Refugee Convention, Convention, such as the OAU Convention? Uh, if both of you, uh, the questions for both of you, any of you can start. Maybe um, we can start yes. with Guy. Yeah, I, I think clearly the, there is much to be learned from what has been done with respect to Cartagena and what's been done with respect to the OAU Convention. And more will need to be learned when we think about climate change and the displacement that arrives from climate change. We, need, we will need to broaden our thinking about the protection that's due to those who are forcibly displaced from their homes. We've a long way to go there. There are basic principles of protection in place, basic pillars of protection, but we still have to go a long way towards defining the way to establishing a status or at least a method of responding to those who are displaced. But I think at the moment we can gain from our understanding of, of the protection that's been accorded to thousands, millions of people through the application of the, of the OAU Convention and the Cartagena Declaration. And I think that should, the experience of that should feed into our understanding of persecution when we come and we still will come to apply the refugee definition. Right, Emma. Um... Uh, yes, just one comment. Um, I think this is also a good example of how there can be creative developments outside of the Refugee Convention to expand uh, the scope of protection that can be afforded to individuals um, without necessarily going back into the text of the Convention and having the, the prospect of amendments 
um, to the convention itself. So keeping the convention as a coherent document, but yet allowing states to go further uh, in their own regional instruments. Right, thank you. Um, and it is sometimes said that individual refugee status determination is just a mechanism that states use to justify the rejection of refugee claims. Do you agree? Would you uh, would broader use of group-based recognition process be preferable? Um, Emma, we'll start with you this time. Uh, well, look, Guy has spoken a little about the other possibilities for determining refugee status. The fact is that there is a preference for individual refugee status determination, uh, which we've seen. And this is the way that practice has developed. And if you go back to the Refugee Convention itself, it doesn't give us a lot of guidance as to how we determine who is a refugee. But on a good faith interpretation of the convention, there clearly has to be some kind of process. And if we have that process, it needs to be fair uh, and entail certain procedural guarantees to make sure that we are not breaching the other fundamental principles of the 1951 convention, the principle of non-refoulement, for example, of non-penalisation for illegal entry. And so I think that I, my view is that RSD itself is not necessarily restrictive and limiting. However, it can be applied in a restrictive and limiting way. And it's important to ensure uh, that the procedures that we set up are sufficiently fair, sufficiently rigorous to allow a person to put forward their claim and be accepted uh, as a refugee uh, without necessarily creating a system which is geared towards winnowing out the claims, geared towards restriction. But I'd also be curious, Arif, to, to hear your thoughts on, on this, if I can throw it back, given that you've practised um, in Australia dealing with these kind of systems? Um, yeah, I think I generally agree with what you said, but there is a sense um, amongst uh, applicants of inequity, essentially, when individual um, applicants from a particular group are refused on the same basis because there's a lot of discretion and because of the narrowness of the law um, and discretion to the decision makers, there's a lot of, uh, there's no consistency in the way decisions made in a lot of times and that, uh, that creates a lot of sense of inequity in applicants um, and that the law is not uh, being applied, the RSC process is not being applied consistently. So that's a main issue, but then the issue of, you know, doing group-based recognition, um, you know, we have seen examples of that in Australia, is that you will have a blanket refusal for a particular cohort, and that is not um, a, a very fair way of doing it either, because there may be in, in those groups, even though a majority of people may not be from a refugee-producing country, but there may be claims there that um, you miss. So yeah, I generally agree with what you said um, uh, about individual RSDs. Um, Guy, did you have any thoughts on this question at all? No, but I see a question has come up on the relationship between convention of refugee protection and statelessness, which yeah. I'd like to, to get to grips with. Um, back in the 1920s, there was no essential difference between the stateless person and the refugee. Both were considered to be without protection and both needed protection. 
and eventually it was provided. But interestingly, the British of all people in 1950 argued that the refugee definition should be expanded to include all those without the protection of the government of their country of origin. They also abstained in voting on the UNHCR statute because they considered that the High Commissioner's mandate was not broad enough. Um, amazing positions which need to be reviewed, I think, and reconsidered and perhaps gone back to and thought over again. Because clearly this is, this is at core the issue, being without protection, whether you're stateless or whether you're a refugee. That should be the criterion for protection, it seems to me. So I think we need to see a return in many respects to basic first principles, if you like, uh, with a new, in a new institutional environment in which we can see further cooperation on solutions, on pathways to protection. Right, um, thank you. And Emma, did you have thoughts on that question? Oh, I think, this? yes, I think Guy's covered it very well. Right. No additional Sounds thoughts good. from my side. Right. Um, what do you, this question is to both of you. Uh, we'll start with you, Emma. What do you see as the role of complementary pathways to protection, given that states continue to impose restrictive measures towards refugees? And how do you see the link, uh, this linking to RSD? Uh, thanks, Arif. Well, I think that complementary pathways are very important. And one of the um, good developments we've seen in recent years is a, a greater recognition of complementary protection within the legislation of states, uh, including Australia. Uh, and this is of great benefit to those who may be in need of protection, but do not fall strictly within the refugee definition that we have, uh, that we've discussed earlier under the convention. Um, there is, however, a need, I think, to ensure that we are giving a fulsome protection to those who are entering under complementary pathways, uh, that it is not a, a second tier protection. Um, and, and that is something that advocates will continue to, to work for, I think, when looking at the practical application of complementary pathways. Right. Um, thank you. And Guy, did you have thoughts? No, I don't. Okay, that's all good. Um, so the next question, I think, is uh, a little bit close to my heart. Um, do you see any changes in the government's attitude towards uh, temporary protection visa holders in Australia who felt who fled Afghanistan before the recent fall to the Taliban. So we have, as Emma mentioned earlier, um, the legacy caseload cohorts are subjected to temporary protection visas in Australia. There's around 5,100 um, Afghans in that category. And it seems like right now, um, uh, you know, in the reasonable foreseeable future, they won't be able to return to Afghanistan given that most of them have been recognized as refugees. Do you see any changes that could happen um, to that cohort, especially the, the, the ones from Afghanistan, given the conflict there now? Guy, uh, yeah, if you want to have a go. Um, uh, Emma. Emma um, I was going to throw to you first, Guy. Um... <laughs> Both too nice. Um, yeah, Emma, yeah, because you talked about the legacy case though before. If you can talk to it, it'll be great. Well, I think if we were to see political change on this issue, it would be extremely welcome. Um, I do not know how likely a political change is uh, at the moment. It is a system which is extremely damaging for those who are within it. It's extremely administratively taxing to be continually asking people to um, 
re-show that they are refugees every three to five years, um, leaving aside the enormous human cost that that causes of, of people who are unable to, to settle, to have that um, continued protection, that legal status that the 1951 Refugee Convention is supposed to guarantee to a person who comes to our shores in need of refuge. Um, and so I, I would deeply hope that we can find a solution for that class of people within our society who have been cut off from permanent protection, from that legal status of, of being part of Australian society on an ongoing basis to prevent them from needing to revisit the worst experiences of their lives on a continued basis and to continue to, to make these arguments as times go by. Um, whether or not that occurs remains to be seen, but that would certainly be my hope. Okay, thank you. Um, and someone has asked, um, from my understanding, it's UNHCR's aim to ensure that host states themselves rather than UNHCR determine RSD. Uh, they say, I understand this to be for the purposes of training states to engage in, in the legal, uh, in this legal analysis themselves, rather than having UNHCR do it for them. Um, is that right? Um, and they go on, but from the perspective of asylum seeker, host states often make far more restrictive decisions than UNHCR. If UNHCR's aim is to increase protection, does this not represent a tension within international refugee regimes. Given that you worked with UNHCR in the past, uh, maybe um, we can have a go at this question. Yes, well, there, there is necessarily a tension. Uh, it, it can be a loose tension, it can be a tight tension between UNHCR and the states in which UNHCR operates. That's in the nature of things. UNHCR is a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly. Uh, it's one which goes into states to help when refugee situations arise but it does so by invitation. It has no right to go in as such. Now, when it takes decisions on refugee status, uh, it also may be providing a service to the state, which the state is unable for various reasons to provide. It may not have the infrastructure. It may not be used to refugee flows. There can be all sorts of reasons why a state is unable to take decisions on refugee status. And the state may be very willing to allow UNHCR to take up on that responsibility. But at the same time, there are limits to what UNHCR can do from a perspective of due process. Uh, if the UNHCR takes a decision on refugee status, how can it be challenged? To whom can it be challenged? UNHCR is not subject to the jurisdiction of the local courts, for example, so you cannot challenge a UNHCR decision in the local courts with any prospect of success. It's one reason why Belgium, for example, took back its previously delegated responsibility to UNHCR and decided to take decisions on refugee status itself. So UNHCR is in the position of taking decisions on refugee status, and it necessarily is in tension with the state itself, which may have no interest in taking up that responsibility, but may want the issue decided because that is the pathway to protection through resettlement. So you've got that other tension of solutions, where the issue of admission of asylum, of protection locally is an issue, but a decision may not be necessary because it may be accepted as a matter of group or or on a category basis that the, the, those who have fled the border across the border should be protected. But when it comes to further settlement, resettlement by other states, then UNHCR's role becomes functional and important. So you're going to, always going to have that tension. 
Now, UNHCR, I know in many respects, would like to rid itself of the responsibility of determining refugee status. But to do that, it has to have, it has to see put in place provisions which allow that to happen. That is happening in many countries. I'm aware of uh, a student, a doctoral student here is doing very important work on uh, in, in respect of countries in Southeast Asia with regard to refugee status determination, determining the categories and how it can be best implemented. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that works out in ways, I suspect, which can be quite uh, different, radically different, perhaps, from those which we have seen is in, established in the Western countries. But yes, there is going to be a tension there between UNHCR's role in determining refugee status and the role of the state itself. That's something we have to live with. Could I just add a note, Arif? Yeah, sure. Um, yes, Guy just mentioned uh, the procedural standards that UNHCR operates under. And I thought it was worth noting that its 2003 procedural standards have recently been replaced. Uh, there's been a new manual put out uh, last year in August, which basically sets out a revised version of what it considers the procedural standards that should guide UNHCR's uh, conduct of RSD, uh, which include, for example, a right to legal representation uh, at an applicant's own cost, which UNHCR officers should generally facilitate wherever possible, and also a right to appeal a negative uh, decision, though that appeal, of course, is to a qualified eligibility officer within UNHCR rather than to an independent body, as Guy has mentioned. Uh, so that is a, a manual that's worth looking into for those who are interested in this kind of question. Thank you, Emma. And um, that brings our panel to the end today. Thank you to the authors, Guy Goodwin-Will, Jane McAdam and Emma Dunlop for the excellent resource that you have provided to us in the Refugee in International Law, and to Guy and Emma for sharing your insights today. Thanks to Oxford University Press for publishing the book, copies of which are available to order through the link in the chat. Thanks to the team at the Caldo Center for bringing the event together. And finally, thank you to the audience for attending today from wherever you are and look forward to seeing you at the next Caldo Center event. Thank you.